The reading is from Luke chapter 16, verses 14 to 31, and it can be found on page 1050, so 1050 of the Blue Bibles. So Luke chapter 16, verses 14 to 31. The Pharisees, who loved money, heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. He said to them, You are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since that time, the good news of the kingdom of God is being preached, and everyone is forcing their way into it. It is easier for heaven and earth to disappear than for the least stroke of a pen to drop out of the law. Anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery, and the man who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. This is God's word. Good morning. Thanks so much for for reading, Sarah. Um, It was some months ago that I discovered that I would be preaching on the rich man and Lazarus, and I was really excited. Um, I was less excited when I read the passage and discovered there were a few verses to contend with before I actually got to the parable. Um, 
But it's, it's, a, it's a great passage, uh, a great truth that we need to uh, accept. Let me pray as, um, before we begin. Dear Father God, again we just thank you for the opportunity uh, to look at your word. Father, we pray, as we always do, that we might be those who hear your word, who long to hear your word, to understand it and to apply it and to receive the truths, Father. So, Father, please, Lord, we pray that you will help me as I seek to explain and help each one here uh, as, they, as they listen, that they might be attentive, that they might receive the truth that you want to bring to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. So we have money, death, hell and divorce. Uh, that's what we'll be covering in the next uh, 20, 25 minutes as we consider the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. You may have different views as to which of those you want me to focus on. Um, but this follows on, if I can just explain for those who haven't been with us, this follows on from, the la from last week's parable of the shrewd, or to use Trevor uh, preferred term, savvy manager working for a rich man. And so the theme through these two parables, uh, through the whole chapter, is one of wealth. Um, but first of all, we need to look at these uh, verses uh, 14 to 18 and, and see what the Lord is, is saying to us uh, through these. And first of all, we, we have these verses where Jesus is confronting the Pharisees. Um, we need to be reminded, uh, if we look at just uh, verse 1 of, the, of chapter 16, that Jesus was actually uh, speaking to his disciples. But clearly the Pharisees, as they often were, were within earshot. And they were listening in, as they often did, um, eager as ever to find, ground, find grounds for criticising Jesus. And probably, at this point in time, looking to collect evidence to build a case of, of blasphemy against him. And once again, they take a, a dislike to what Jesus is teaching, uh, that no one can serve two masters. And we finished last week at uh, verse 13, but it's good if we just read that again. Uh, verse 13, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And really, uh, the Pharisees didn't like this, for they loved money. We read in verse 14, they loved money. They weren't particularly rich, but their longing was, was to get more rich. And so they were wanting to, to build their wealth. And we, so we begin today by seeing the Pharisees' response to that very direct statement of Jesus which he probably aimed, knowing their hearts, he probably aimed at them specifically. They're not happy. They weren't happy when Jesus welcomed uh, the tax collectors and sinners and taught them and even ate with them. We read that in, uh, back in chapter 15, verse 2. They, they were muttering amongst themselves that Jesus should keep company with such people. But now their grievance rises by more than a notch or two, they sneer at Jesus. We see in verse 14. The Pharisees who loved money heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. They were turning their noses up at him. And why? Well, we've seen, because they love money. 
And Jesus addresses them directly. You justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. That is pretty hard hitting. But God knows their hearts, and what people value highly is detestable in God's sight. They are hard hitting words, uh, but they are needed. But then we come to verses 16 uh, to 18, and they seem a little bit out of place, and they've caused many commentators to be perplexed about this. They seem to be a bit awkward. It, it almost seems as though there's something missing between verses, verse 15 and verse 16. You think there ought to be a connecting sentence or two. two. And it's obviously puzzled many scholars and particularly the editors of the NIV for they've actually put verses 16 to 18 together and totally perplexed they've given it the very very unhelpful heading of additional teachings I think Jesus is responding to the ongoing criticism by the Pharisees that he and his disciples do not observe the law as they see it, with all their pernickety additions to it, particularly in the area of purity and holiness. Uh, they were often, Jesus was often criticised for doing things on the Sabbath, which they thought was wrong. What really gets them is that Jesus chooses to associate with tax collectors and others of a similar background rather than them. And what really gets Jesus is that they're so wrapped up in observing the law that they are missing the point of the law. Observance of the law should be out of love for God, but their hearts are cold towards God and cold towards ordinary people. In verse 16, Jesus explains that a new era has arrived with John the Baptist's ministry. It marks a turning point of redemptive history. But the Pharisees, who considered themselves experts in the law and the prophets, have missed the significance of the very, very one, the Lord Jesus, to whom the law and the prophets point. And Jesus says, while the Pharisees are complaining and finding fault with him and his teaching, droves... Uh, droves of ordinary people are responding to his message of repentance and entering into the kingdom. The Pharisees and the uh, Jewish leaders were very critical, but the ordinary people, we see that from the, the crowds that Jesus attracted by his teaching. They wanted to hear Jesus. They wanted to know the truth. And not all, but many, came into the kingdom as they heard Jesus' teaching. And then in verse 17, Jesus emphasises that the law all the moral principles have not changed and never will. And Jesus has embodied the law in his own teaching. But what about verse 18? Why does Jesus bring up the issue of divorce, which seems to have no connection? I think perhaps he's just wanting to emphasise that with the kingdom era, era having arrived, there will be no weakening of moral standards 
and of holiness. And this was an opportunity to make a statement about divorce that, that the Pharisees would not want to hear. It got to the point that rab rabbis were allowing divorce for any number of trivial reasons. If a wife burned her husband's meal more than once a week, she was in danger of being divorced. Um, if a husband found after 10 years that there was a more attractive woman he would prefer to live with, that was a grounds for divorce. It was all one-sided in the husband's favour. In a time when we were talking about the need for levelling up, um, this was a need to level up the issue of divorce. And more than that, for Jesus to affirm God's view of divorce. At this point in my preparation, I wondered whether I should spend the next 20 minutes talking about divorce or whether to, take, to go further and um, look at the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. There are more teachings of Jesus, uh, particularly in Matthew's Gospel, about divorce, which expands uh, the teaching somewhat. And it is, I concluded, uh, not appropriate to spend more time on this issue uh, this morning. So let us look at uh, the rich man and Lazarus. And some commentators question whether it's correct to classify this as a parable. Their main argument being that in no other parable is a name given to any of the characters. Um, in this case, we have uh, one of the characters named Lazarus. I don't find that convincing. Look at the way Jesus begins the story in verse 19. There was a rich man. Look at the way um, Jesus began the uh, previous parable, verse 1. There was a rich man. And how did Jesus begin the third part of the parable of the lost sheep, coin and son, in chapter 15? Verse 11. There was a man. This follows the same pattern as I see it of many, many of the parables. And I don't think there's anything to suggest to me that this is not another parable used by Jesus to teach his disciples and others on his way up to Jerusalem. So in this parable, we have uh, two lives, two destinies, and two requests. And then I want to finish by looking at two questions. So look at uh, two lives. The circumstances of the two men could not be more extreme. We have the extravagant guy, rich guy, who dressed like royalty and probably lived like royalty. And, and the reference to purple says it all. Purple was the most expensive and most rare of all pigments. And not surprisingly, it was the choice of those of noble and royal birth and of high-ranking officials. If you wore purple, then people knew that you were someone of standing. It was such an expensive dye uh, because it was such a, a laborious process in producing it. Uh, the liquid came from a tiny snail found in the Mediterranean Sea. And can you guess how many of these snails would be needed uh, to produce one pound of dye? Some great mathematician has said four million of these snails. So you can imagine uh, how expensive it was. Now, if this guy lived today and had a, a luxury uh, residence in the heart of Lower Kingswood, the likes of us would never rub shoulders with him 
and even the most exclusive of the fashion houses on the high street. And uh, if you're wondering what the fashion houses on the high street are, I think they're the charity shops. <laughs> his choice of purple symbolised his life of luxury and his desire that people would recognise his true station in life. And don't think that the gate referred to was the slatted wooden variety of a height that I would often jump over when I was delivering newspapers a few years ago. <laughs> the second man knew that gate well. It was where he spent his days begging. Unlike the rich man, he's named Lazarus, which is derived from Eleazar. Ironically, Eleazar means God helps. But on this surface, there's no evidence whatsoever that God has ever helped him. If God is benevolent and has had any input to the circumstances of either man, then it hasn't been poor Lazarus who's been the recipient. Or perhaps he was named Lazarus, as someone has suggested, because he had no one apart from God to help him. Having said that, the text says that he was laid at the gate, uh, suggesting that he was crippled, unable to make his own way there, and so relied on others to take him. And so there were people who helped him in that way, uh, but not beyond that. Being unable to work explains why he had to beg. There's no mention of his clothes, hardly worthy of mention. The word rags comes to mind. But more significant than his clothing is the fact that he is covered with sores and the dogs that roamed the streets came and licked them. The dogs would have been considered unclean for in all probability they also licked animal corpses on their way round the street. So whilst the rich man was set up for life, Lazarus' daily task was to get sufficient sustenance to survive the day, to avoid becoming a corpse himself. We read that he longed to eat what fell from the rich man's table. It's not clear whether that actually happened, whether leftovers were tossed over the gate, or whether he was left to rummage through the green food waste bin ahead of the do dogs and foxes when it was put out, or whether he was left to rely on the passers-by who would take pity on him. But no compassion came from the rich man. He could so easily have shown mercy and instructed his servants to provide for Lazarus without any impact upon his own lifestyle. But then we come to two destinies. The two men had nothing in common except what we read in verse 22. They both died. But note there was only mention of one burial, doubtless with no expense spared, the burial of the rich man. We can assume that Lazarus' body was simply disposed of as quickly as possible at no cost and at no inconvenience to anyone. But death is not the end. So what are their experiences now? We see a, a sudden and dramatic reversal of circumstances. Lazarus is safe by the side of Abraham, no longer in need. It is the rich man in desperate need 
He was set up for life, but not for death. And whilst Lazarus is in a place of state, in a place and state of bliss, the rich man is in a place and state of agony and torment. We read that in verse 23. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with, with Lazarus by his side. If we understand the Bible correctly, it seems that there were two regions of Hades, one for the likes of Lazarus, the righteous, and the other for the likes of the unrighteous, the rich man. But that is no longer the case. When Christ ascended into heaven, he was joined in heaven by those who had died who were declared righteous. And all believers who have died since have gone directly to heaven to be with Christ. And so Hades is now only a place of torment. But it should not be confused with hell. It is an intermediate place until the day of the final judgment after Jesus has returned. I'm sorry this is a bit heavy. Here is something a little lighter, an epitaph I read about, supposedly on a tombstone in a cemetery in Indiana. Paul's stranger, when you pass me by, as you are now, so once was I. As I am now, so you will be. So prepare for death and follow me. The greater wisdom lies in the two lines that someone has scratched below it. To follow you, I'm not content until I know which way you went. And so we have two requests uh, from the rich man. His first request is in verse 24. He called to, to Abraham, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I'm agony in this fire. The man who showed no pity to Lazarus now asks for pity and wants Lazarus to dispense it. What a reversal of roles. The rich man is now the beggar. But notice he doesn't ask Lazarus directly whom he recognises, but he addresses Father Abraham. He probably considers himself, as he always did, above speaking to a street beggar or even a former street beggar. And it seems that he was behaving as he always had, exercising authority and control, making demands of others and expecting them to obey, still believing that, the, with, that with the wealth he once had, he still has power. But Abraham explains that what he's asking is not possible. There's a great chasm between the two realms and no one can go from one to the other. Whereas in life just a gate stood between them, which was no barrier at all to a show of pity, now it was just impossible to cross the great chasm that existed between the two. He was forced to accept the reality of his situation. There was no escape for him. His destiny was final. But then he immediately thought about his five brothers 
They must be warned. And so he begs Abraham that Lazarus be sent on a mercy mission to warn them. Verse 28. I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. And Abraham's reply there, verse 29. They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. But Abraham says, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. And Abraham replies in verse 31, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. And how true that has proved to be for 2,000 years now. Jesus rose from the dead and still few people believe. And today few people take any notice of the solemn warning in this parable. I find it interesting that the rich man, and I do wish he had a name to avoid this continued reference to the rich man, he doesn't rant and rave about a gross miscarriage of justice. He does not seek to justify why he should be in the same place as Lazarus. He seems to accept his situation. Obviously, he is horrified to be there, but seemingly not surprised. What is also interesting is his reference in verse 30 to repentance. So he knew about the need to repent. Was he now recalling a time when he had been told to repent and had refused to do so? Had he been given a warning of the consequences of not believing and of not repenting? Did he choose not to believe? Or perhaps he really did believe the warning but decided that he would repent later. He was confident perhaps that he would not die any time soon. But he never got round to it. Or possibly he was, was wrong and he did die sometime soon. Someone has said that every person will believe the truth about Hades and hell sooner or later. But be believing before you get there makes a world of difference. And the rich man discovered that too late. So where did he go wrong? There's no suggestion that he acquired his wealth by unlawful means or used it for any unlawful purposes. All we know is that he was only too aware of Lazarus' need and yet chose to do nothing about it. There was a complete absence of any compassion. He did not have God's heart. And his, at his attitude towards Lazarus was a reflection of his attitude towards God, one of indifference. I'm sure that what Jesus said of the Pharisees was also true of him. If we look back at verse 13. No man can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and mammon. And in verse 15. You are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. Those words were aimed at the Pharisees, 
but I think they were true also of the rich man. Jesus was being pretty blunt. If you're devoted to one master, you despise the other. And anything that you value highly is detestable in God's sight. And we need to understand that it's not only the rich who may love money. The poor may have a longing to get rich. Indeed, whether rich or poor, or somewhere in between, we are all vulnerable to loving money, wanting more, and serving it. And whilst on the subject of money, please excuse me for digressing slightly to talk about the rising cost of living. Everyone else is. But I think I'm just reflecting something um, included in Audrey's prayer. I felt challenged as I've thought about this passage over the last couple of weeks, reflecting on the situation Lazarus was in and the poverty in society today, even in the UK. No one is going to escape the impact of all the rises in costs. And many of us will be thinking about the actual effect it will have upon us and what changes, essentially cutbacks, we might need to make. But my concern is for the poor who will be hit hardest. I think God has been saying to me that this is a time when, despite all the necessary belt tightening, Christians must show even greater compassion and love for those with much greater needs than our own. Enough said. It's not too much of a digression. For I'd like to turn you back. I'm just coming up to these two questions. But just please turn back um, to chapter 10. Do you remember the question that prompted Jesus, um, the parable of the Good Samaritan? Chapter 10, uh, verse 25, it's route 25 to 28. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbour as yourself. You've answered correctly, Jesus said, replied, do this and you will live. This shows that what Jesus is saying now in this parable is consistent with what he'd said previously, that God demands that we love him with an undivided heart. And the very first step to loving God is admitting that we do not deserve his love because of our sin, and we do have to do something about that. So just a couple of questions as we close. The Bible is full of warnings uh, about Hades as one of the two destinies. We need to, do we heed those warnings or do we ignore them? We each have a choice to make. I've suggested that the rich man may have made a deliberate decision to ignore those warnings. That may be true of many people now in Hades. They can recall a time when they were told what was needed for them to get to heaven. They either chose not to believe or postponed the decision. And they died and went to Hades before that decision was made. Abraham told the man that the Mullins brothers had access to the warnings from Moses and the prophets. And it was up to them whether they listened to them and heed them. There may be some here who have heard the warnings many times, perhaps even this very parable, but have still not acted upon them. And can I just urge you, if that is your situation, please do not delay any longer.
The second question is a related one. What grounds do any of us have for claiming that we deserve heaven as our destiny, not Hades? I would suggest that the vast majority of the residents of Banstead, the vast majority of the UK population who expect to go to heaven believe that they deserve to because they've lived pretty good lives. But they don't, regardless of the life they've lived. No one has ever deserved to go to heaven. We all deserve to go to Hades. What does the Bible say? Since we have been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? The his and him are, of course, Jesus. The Apostle Paul wrote that in Romans and Peter was also referring to Jesus when he said, Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. We're all totally undeserving of heaven and will not get there unless we believe on Jesus and repent of our sin. If anything I've said is unclear, and I fear that much of what I've said will have been, please do speak to me or to someone whom you think will understand what I've been saying. And there are many people. But just let me urge, urge you, if, if there's anyone here who has yet to make a decision for the Lord Jesus by believing on him and repenting of their sin, then perhaps today is the day you should make that decision. Let me pray. Dear Father God, we thank you for your scriptures which reveal the truth concerning the way of salvation. Thank you that you are so patient that you do not want anyone to perish. And so, Father, I pray that you would convict anyone here who has yet to repent and believe on the Lord Jesus, that this day uh, you will convict them of their sin and cause them to turn to Jesus. For it is our desire that when Jesus returns, we will all be found with him, our Saviour. And Father, as we experience your love, may we be those who show compassion and love to others, and especially the needy. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.